Welcome to Healthy Dialogue, the podcast of the Alliance of Community Health Plans. Here's your host, ACHB CEO, Cece Connolly. If you're with us for episode two of Healthy Dialogue, first, welcome back and thanks for sticking with us. And if you're with us for episode two, it probably means you got through episode one. Episode one was a bit of a good news, bad news roller coaster, I'll acknowledge. We talked about some of the healthcare innovations that have been accelerated by the COVID 19 pandemic. Remember, good. But we also talked about some systemic institutional challenges that are standing in the way of more long term progress. We figured that one was bad. We called out the misdirected fee-for-service model that most of our healthcare system is built on, a perverse set of incentives that reward providers for doing more things to more people more often, whether it actually results in better health or not. Yep, you've got it. Bad. So there's no mistaking how we feel about fee-for-service here at ACHP. We can whine about all that's wrong with the U.S. system, or we can do something about it. And in the simplest sense, Doing something about it will require one of two things to happen. Either all of the players, health plans, providers, patients, and those shareholders all have to agree voluntarily on some new path forward, or we're going to need new health policy that dictates the way forward. Some health plans have turned out to be pretty good at the volunteer approach. And we shared some of those examples with you in episode one. But others need the legislative mandate, the policy fix, or some set of carrots and sticks to force change. We have some ideas about that. In fact, we have 10 years worth of ideas about that. This month, ACHP will release our report, Healthcare 2030, ACHP's Roadmap to Reform. Nearly a year in the making, this document tackles a litany of the major challenges we face in healthcare today. But it's not your typical shopping list of finger pointing and pontificating. It's much more about solutions. Some short-term low-hanging fruit and some long-term heavier lifts. It's practical, nonpartisan, and we believe highly actionable. We're excited to share it with you and hope it will inspire you to engage in some healthy dialogue about fixing our system. Our first guest today, by the way, knows a lot about that system because she used to oversee a major part of it. Today, we are joined by Democratic Congresswoman and former Cabinet Secretary Donna Shalala. Prior to representing Florida's 27th District on Capitol Hill, she served in the Clinton administration as Secretary of Health and Human Services from 1993 to 2001, a fierce advocate for access to affordable coverage and care. We are pleased to have her join us today. Congresswoman, welcome to Healthy Dialogue. You're welcome. I'm happy to be here. It's so great to have you. And and I confess, uh, old habits die hard. I still want to say, Madam Secretary, you have been in public policy and healthcare, trying to bring coverage and care to so many in so many important roles over the years. 
it's really just super to have you with us at this very important moment in our history. Thank you very much. It's a very difficult time in our history, particularly in the history of healthcare and science. So let's talk a little bit about that. You, of course, have focused for so long on access to high-quality, affordable care. If you were to think about really achieving that goal over the next decade, what steps do you believe Congress needs to take to help make that happen? I think there are a couple things we need to do. Number one, we should use the Affordable Care Act as a platform. It's a pretty good health plan. We didn't get the subsidies quite right. They really have to be deeper. It needs to go deeper into the middle class because we have people in the gig economy that need access to health care that obviously don't have a big employer that's going to provide it. So we also need to focus on those states, the handful of states that have not extended Medicaid because we have lots of low-income workers. So I would be first uh, the Affordable Care Act. Second, I'd look at long-term care. It's clear to me that we made important steps in Medicare by uh, providing drug coverage, but we have never dealt with the long-term care issue. You can get long-term care if you're on Medicaid, but Medicare has very limited benefits. And finally, we need to look in deep, deeply at mental health services. We've talked about equity and mental health. We have not fully integrated it into our healthcare plans. And particularly while we're going through COVID-19, we've seen gaps in our mental health system. Now, there are some good things that have happened. The first thing I would do is I'd take those regulations on telemedicine and I'd make them permanent because it seems to me that both the specialties as well as primary care have been learning about telehealth. It's come into its own and it's time for us to integrate those regs directly into our healthcare system and CMS could do that immediately. So that's a long answer to a a number of things I do. Well, I'm so glad that you mentioned telehealth because, of course, our members, nonprofit community health plans, um, many had been using it prior to COVID-19. But once that pandemic hit, we saw just phenomenal uptake. And I'm curious, from your direct experience there in Florida, where the pandemic uh, is still continues to spread, how does telehealth become a a good alternative in a crisis like this? Well, it's been a lifeline, but it seems to me that one of the things that's important is not to look at it in terms of COVID and the ability of doctors to tell people if they have some symptoms, to talk to them about their symptoms, to get right away to an emergency room or to a hospital to get early treatment for COVID. But what we're learning about telehealth is the cardiologists, the neurologists, all the specialties have been able to use it in large part because of the decisions on reimbursement. So I think that the major breakthrough in telehealth is not simply how it helps us in an emergency, but how it can be integrated into the overall health system. So I'm very excited about the fact that the only good thing I can think of to come out of this crisis is the integration of telehealth into not simply emergency services, but our major specialties. I couldn't agree with you more on on the only bright spot in what has otherwise been such a 
troubling, disturbing, unnerving experience here with with this pandemic. And and I want to stay on the pandemic for a moment, even as it continues. What would you say is the biggest gap in healthcare that has been identified in the course of this pandemic? Oh, it's it certainly has to be coverage that we just even with deep investments in community health centers, we simply have left too many people out and there's too much lousy health insurance out there. So we just have this big coverage gap. And particularly, we're seeing the disparities for low-income and minority populations. Do you think that there is an opportunity, perhaps sparked by COVID-19, for any bipartisanship on Capitol Hill when it comes to health care? Well, we've seen it in the CARES Act. Certainly in the first three CARES Act we did, we were able to invest in hospitals and community health centers in coverage, certainly for testing and other kinds of COVID-related activities, including, of course, unemployment and all of the things we were able to do for the economy. We've stopped that bipartisanship, and I'm very worried. Of course, at the other end of the political spectrum would be the progressives that say we need single-payer Medicare for all. I don't believe you have embraced that approach. I have not. I'm very pragmatic. I want to take existing platforms that work well and build on them for people that are left out of the healthcare system. I'd rather have the system that we have enhanced to make sure those that don't have coverage get coverage. And so turning to one specific program, Medicare Advantage, I think we can agree it's incredibly popular. We have watching we've been watching enrollment grow very rapidly. In fact, I believe your district may have one of the highest MA penetration rates in the nation. And so what's your vision for the future of Medicare Advantage? Well, I think it's going to cover the country within a short period of time. Florida, two-thirds of the people in South Florida are in Medicare Advantage plans. So Medicare Advantage is extremely popular in South Florida, much more than in any other part of the country. And that created a problem, by the way, for the distribution of CARES money, because they looked at traditional Medicare and uh, distributed the money. And as a result, we got discriminated against because we were had such a high penetration of Medicare Advantage. So I am a fan of Medicare Advantage. I think it has served us well, but the Medicare system itself, we need to add benefits for everyone, but more importantly, we need to look at long-term care. And I don't mean just nursing home care. In fact, I think nursing homes, I, I certainly am wary about them because they've been Petri dishes for the most part, but home health care, we've got to figure out a way to properly pay people for home health care. And I know that from a personal experience, my mother lived 104. And in her last years, we had 24-hour home health care workers. They don't make very much. They made a lot more working for me because I wanted to make sure that they had health care as well. But I learned a lot more about the home health care business 
by using it than I ever did as secretary. Well, and it's so interesting that you bring that up. Again, a few of our community health plans, they're not necessarily in the long-term care business, but even the creation of their hospital at home programs. Now I'm thinking about Select Health in Utah and Security in Marshfield, Wisconsin, where patients and their families can have the choice of whether or not they want to go into a hospital for a hundred or a hundred and 50 different conditions. Yeah, and and certainly in a place like Wisconsin, where home health is very popular as opposed to institutional care, they've had a long investment since the 1980s in community-based healthcare. I know Marshfield very well because I was chancellor of the University of Wisconsin at Madison. And Wisconsin is one of those states which has had a deep commitment to home care, to community-based care, to keeping people in their own homes. Miami is the same. People keep their grandparents in their homes, their mothers and fathers that are disabled, and we need a healthcare system that adjusts to that. I don't, I don't particularly care whether we save money or not. I'm interested in the quality of care. Jeb Bush, when he was governor, I was secretary of HHS, and he came up with a plan for community-based care. And of course, he was a Republican, so a lot of my staff people were wary. And I said, when you see a community Republican that's interested in community-based care and keeping people at home if we can, I said, you sign up for it. So I immediately gave him the waiver. But what we're interested in is quality the quality of care. And if we can do it at home, we ought to be doing it. I'm going to ask you to just think a little bit ahead, maybe over the next few months. So the fall and then in towards January, we may have a new administration in the White House. We may have some changes in Congress. What do you forecast will happen with respect to healthcare in our public policy arena? Well, assuming what's going to happen is what I think is going to happen, and that is Democrats are going to take the Senate as well as hold the House and take the presidency, we'll see a dramatic change in leadership with the president taking hold of COVID and having national standards and a national commitment to make sure everybody that needs PPE will get PPE, and a national investment in infrastructure, as well as more of a focus, I think, on treatment. We've been focused so much on a vaccine. We never got one for AIDS, but we got first-class treatment that saved lives. And we need treatment, and, and as well as a delivery system and an infrastructure that's very different from what we now have. So I think we know what to do, and I actually think that we could get bipartisan support for doing it. Well, that is a bright and encouraging note to end on, the notion of bipartisan support for pragmatic practical healthcare. I just want to thank you, Madam Secretary, Congresswoman Shalala. Thank you for joining Healthy Dialogue. You're welcome. Stay healthy. We'll be back with more of ACHP's Healthy Dialogue after a quick message from our sponsor. 
Insidious Tech is a specialty provider of healthcare technology services and solutions with a strong presence around the globe. With more than a decade of experience, Sidious Tech is uniquely positioned to help health plans achieve seamless integration, drive scalability, and enable sustainable convergence. Sidious Tech offers a suite of services and platforms that enable provider-aligned health plans to accelerate innovation in key areas, such as interoperability, care management, member experience, digital health, operational analytics, and regulatory reporting. Learn more at SidiousTech.com. My pleasure to welcome Dr. Mark Harrison to Healthy Dialogue today. As the president and CEO of Intermountain Healthcare in Utah, Mark is leading the way on transformation and innovation in healthcare today, most recently helping to launch Civica RX, a nonprofit generic drug company. He's on every list of influential and great leaders, and we're so honored to have him here today. Mark, Thanks for joining us. Thank you. So glad to be here. You know, Mark, I want to start with the really terrific piece that you published over the summer in Harvard Business Review. And one of the points that you make in that article is that COVID-19 is a wake-up call that tells us we need to change what we're doing, do it better, and make it more affordable. That sounds pretty ambitious. Can you offer up a couple of immediate actions that would move us in that direction? There are a few things that can happen immediately, and maybe some of them are happening right now already. And one of them is the harness technology more aggressively piece. The transformation around telehealth has really been very dramatic. And I think it's most in line with what Intermountain has said for a long time, that a lot of care that's delivered really actually does not need to be delivered and certainly doesn't need to be delivered face-to-face. I think it would be really quite sad if we had a payment system that incentivized bringing people back into offices unnecessarily. At Intermountain, we went from having a couple dozen televisits per week to well over 8,000, 9,000. Well, but you really put your finger on a concern that I have, Mark, which is Will payment models draw physicians and thus their patients back into facilities and away from telemedicine? So what kinds of things are you at Intermountain and Select Health, of course, as your plan? What are you all trying to do to ensure we keep taking advantage of this wonderful technology? You know, we're really quite fortunate, as you know, Cece, in that we've worked very, very hard. This has not been an accident, but a About half of our business, about half of our practice is now fully capitated. And it has been a really easy shift for us, particularly for that population, to just do what's right for the patient. And so we we pivoted really fast during the beginning of the pandemic, and we are bound and determined not to let that backslide. And we're making sure that our providers are well compensated if they're on an RVU basis for, for that care. 
And if they're not, the salaried model lends itself even better to making sure that doesn't happen. You know, you mentioned salary model, capitation, other folks use the phrase global payment systems. And and also, if we can add into this conversation, a payer provider, either integration or close collaboration, describe for me how important these ingredients are to getting to the kind of future state health system that I think you and I envisioned. So as a for instance, we've worked hard around reimagining primary care with lots of panel-based care where generally the providers are salaried, but then bonused for things like quality and the good health of their patients. We end up spending less money and keeping people a lot healthier and keeping them in least less restrictive environments. And I think the payer provider model, when done well, really should exemplify that because much as we did at Intermountain almost three years ago when I sat everyone down at the same table and I said, there's only one P&L that counts. It's for the whole organization and it's for the betterment of the communities and the people who trust us in those communities that we exist. Well, Mark, and I think that your leadership on that front and that message that you began with several years ago, and I've watched it unfold at your organization now, has been so meaningful and really has made a difference. Tell me if you've got one or two favorite examples of where this integrated model in the truest sense has paid off for patients and maybe bottom line too. We have a a number of examples. The financials for these reimagined primary care clinics are going really well, but I'll give you two examples of what I think are successes. The first is to listen to a young primary care physician who's three years out of training and who told me that he felt like he was on an every 15 minute treadmill for the rest of his life and that he didn't know how he was going to actually have a career in medicine because he hated the time pressure and the drive to see more patients in order to make more money. And he shifted into one of these salaried model panel-based care situations and was able to fully utilize nurses and nurse practitioners and pharmacists and care navigators and had time to do things like spend as much time as he wanted with a patient or make a home visit. And he's incredibly happy and satisfied. And what he said to me, he said, I feel like I'm practicing medicine as it was meant to be practiced, as I hoped I would get to practice it. And I'm happy. So that was really meaningful. Another example is I was visiting one of our rural hospitals in central Utah, really long way from any next hospital, over 100 miles in any direction. And as I was visiting there, I visited their tele-oncology clinic. It was our first one. And I asked the nurse who was in the clinic, said, so why did this start? And she said, we began to realize that our elderly rural patients were choosing to die rather than have their cancer treated because they didn't want to spend what they perceived to be the rest of their life driving back and forth to larger centers to get chemotherapy. So she said, we kind of invented this approach where they could actually be seen by a televisit by a provider, and then we could deliver their chemotherapy right here. And we now have eight of those centers in five, in five states. And that's actually really exciting. And we're getting great results. It keeps rural hospitals and communities viable because they actually have revenue that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. They are often the largest employers in their in their community, and so that's good for the local economy. And it's most importantly, it's great for these patients who are leading good quality and longer lives. 
you know, I, I will tell you, CC, and I know you, you believe this as well. In general, the right human decision can be made into a good business decision as well. You know, another topic that you and I have certainly talked about over the years, but it's suddenly now, I think, has taken on a real urgency, which is around health equity, the disparities that we're seeing through the COVID-19 pandemic. Mark, how do we as a nation finally start to get serious about these huge gaps? This is a really special time. So COVID has smacked us in the face with the fact that black and brown people especially face huge disparities in terms of how they do in the face of big healthcare problems. And then you overlay that with the murder of George Floyd and the activism that is associated with that. And I think there's an extraordinarily compelling argument for uh, now is the time for change. So I, I think we're at a really special moment. My distinct hope is that businesses will fail if they don't get on board with this. I, I'm, I'm hoping that the next generation of adults are going to view equity or at the march towards equity as a must do if they are going to either work for or patronize a business. Again, this is one of those aligned incentive pieces. I don't think this is going to be something that's going to be legislated or mandated. I think it's going to be a grassroots movement that will have huge economic implications if people don't comply and actually make big change. And I'm going to speculate here that related to the conversation around equity and disparities are unmet social needs. I know you've got some really neat pilots going on right now around social determinants of health. I think you've talked about how the notion of health is so much more appealing than the term health care. And so we're really talking about getting upstream, focusing on prevention, what's going on in a community. Tell me a little how you at Intermountain with Select Health as your plan partner are trying to address some of these social determinants of health. Thanks, Cece. This is, again, one of those pieces where there has to be alignment. In order to be truly successful, there has to be alignment between the business model and the social action. I'm always a bit mystified when I hear about a fee-for-service oriented system when they donate X number of dollars towards housing or a supermarket in a neighborhood. And I know that's well-intentioned, and I know that some good will come of it, but it, it smacks of charity as opposed to transformational change. And what we try and do is we try and align our efforts of keeping people well and having a sustainable business associated with that with making improvements in a community. And our efforts range from coordinating with local agencies around housing or transportation or food insecurity to working with other institutions who provide healthcare who are, would normally be competitors to make sure that folks don't fall through the cracks. I like so much the notion of charity versus transformational change. And I certainly think here at Healthy Dialogue and within our ACHP membership, we are right there with you on the, the transformational change theme. And so with that, if, Mark, I were to hand you the Healthy Dialogue magic wand and you could wave it and make just one policy change in healthcare, have you got one for me? I do, Cece. 
So there's not a healthcare system out there that isn't reliant on government programs for a large portion of the business they do. And I, I think that in order to be eligible to participate in those programs, a percentage of their business needs to be full risk. And that percentage should go up year on year. And similarly, for private payers, I believe they shouldn't be allowed to participate in MA unless they do the same in some of their commercial products. And I think if we did that, people would learn very quickly. So that's the change I would make. And what I really like about it, Mark, is that you're imagining government as a purchaser using that purchasing power almost as much as it's regulatory power. And I think that is really exciting. (laughs) Well, thank you. And what I like about it, it's so I'm a unreconstructed capitalist who tries to do some good with the system that I'm privileged to run. And it uses the market to to actually make meaningful change for the people we serve. And it encourages innovation and creativity as opposed to being really prescriptive. I agree. Dr. Mark Harrison, what a treat to have you on Healthy Dialogue. Thank you. It's my privilege and pleasure. And I hope you keep well and wash your hands and wear a mask. Will do. Before we go any further, CC needs a minute. I said at the top of this episode that fixing our health system will happen one of two ways, voluntarily or legislatively. And look, we're not so naive that we don't understand how difficult the voluntary approach is. But let's take a step back and look at the playing field. There are basically four stakeholders. First, are the people that are paying for care. I call them the purchasers. That includes government, employers, individuals, and health plans. Next, of course, are the people providing the care. The doctors, the nurses, the pharmacists, from primary to specialty to hospital. They're the people receiving care. That's you and me and our friends and family. And too often, there's a fourth group, the people that are profiting off of the other three. Think about shareholders, investors, business people. We're talking Wall Street here. The temptation is strong because don't forget, this is my needs a minute. The temptation is strong to just say, let's get rid of group number four. That would make life a lot easier. But that's not my call. What I can tell you is one of the reasons I love working for the Alliance of Community Health Plans is that as nonprofits, they don't face those same pressures to answer to Wall Street. And that makes a difference. We spilled just a few of our beans earlier about the 10-year roadmap for healthcare reform that ACHP will be releasing on September 22nd. I think what you'll find really cool about that roadmap is that it encompasses both the voluntary and the legislative. It's not all policy prescription. In fact, every ACHP member organization has agreed to demonstrate voluntarily how we can make healthcare better without even waiting on lawmakers or regulators. I think you're going to like that balance. We'll tell you more about that in episode three of Healthy Dialogue. Until then, thanks for listening.
and stay safe. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Healthy Dialogue. Learn more about the Alliance of Community Health Plans at echp.org and click the Add to Contacts button to connect directly with our team. We hope you'll also find us on Twitter at underscore ACHP and on LinkedIn. And if you liked today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Reviews help new listeners find our podcast and hopefully spur more healthy dialogue out there.